Well, today we are talking about Jewish weddings, the age of creation, and if you stick around to the end, we might even talk a little bit about the books that didn't make it into the Bible. I'm David Tate, and this is part nine of the Gospel of John series. And if you're new to this series, this is basically a whole compilation of lessons wherein we are walking slowly but surely, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John, trying to approach it from every possible angle to see if we can just get as much as we possibly can out of the fourth Gospel. Uh, we've been in the narrative of John for the last few weeks, and today we are hopping in to chapter 2. And so, without further ado, I'm going to pray for us so that we can get right into it. Dear God, thank you so much for another opportunity to go into your word. I pray that as we do this, you will only open up my mouth so that I will speak only what you would have me say. I pray that this lesson will be true, and I pray that it will truly present your word in a way that is both informative and enlightening to those who are hearing. I pray that everybody who's listening will have ears open to actually and truly hear what your word says, and that their hearts will be receptive to you, so that by the end of this lesson, we all may draw nearer and closer to the God who created us. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that we will not take this time for granted, but will come to you truly and dearly as beloved children seeking to know their Father more and more. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we are entering into chapter 2 today. And with that, we are going to be picking up in verses 1 through 11. And so I'm just going to read those. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So like I said, today we are entering into chapter 2 of John. And with this, we get the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. It's a really cool story. You're probably familiar with it, but let's begin to break it down so that we can try to get as much as we possibly can out of it. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll learn more than you knew going in. So verses 1 to 2, we read this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so you'll notice that at the beginning of that verse, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding. Right, which that would imply to us, as we've seen in previous passages in John, well, if it's on the third day, that implies that this is the third day since something else that has already happened. 
And this is actually the fifth day we hear narrated or talked about in the Gospel of John, but it actually would conclude an entire week's worth of events. This is the seventh day since the beginning of the Gospel of John. And if we were going to break it down, it'd be like this. Day one, we could call the witness. And that's because we get to see the identity of John the Baptist, who is the witness to Jesus Christ. Day two, we could call that the Word, because that's whenever Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh, shows up, and John the Baptist points out his identity to the people around him. Day three, we could call the welcome, because that's whenever John the Baptist introduces his disciples to Jesus, therefore welcoming him, welcoming him to them. And then they go and they follow Jesus and he welcomes them into his tent where they talk for an entire night and get to know one another. And that's where Jesus gets his first three disciples. He gets to know John, Andrew, and Peter. Day four would be the walk. And that's whenever they decide heading, they decide to go off to Galilee and they start making their way there as we're going to see, which leads to day five. But on day four, that's whenever we encounter Jesus' fourth and fifth disciples, which would be Philip and Nathaniel. Which leads us to day five, which would be the wedding. And this is the fifth day narrated, but actually, as we read here, it's the third day after the last one. So this would actually be day seven in the narrative. So day one is the witness. Day two is the word. Day three is the welcome. Day fourth is the walk. And then day seven, the end of the week, would be the wedding. And if you know anything about the um, geography of Israel, they're going from southern Israel, Judea, up to Galilee, and so it would have taken multiple days to get there. And so that would actually bring up an important question that many people would notice. What is the significance of there being seven days right here? Because after this point right here, John is no longer going to tell us the next day, the next day, the next day, and he's not going to actually give us specific numbers of days and specific chronology. He's going to say, as we're going to see in like verse 12 next week, he's going to say, they stayed many days in Capernaum. But he's not going to tell us how many, right? But up until now, he's been telling us specifically this happened, the next day this happened, the next day this happened, and then three days later this happened. He's been very specific about the information. And so some people would ask, what's the significance of seven days? Why does he go from day one to day seven and then just move on? And there's actually different ways to interpret this. Uh, some people would actually notice that the way that the Gospel of John opened up was a callback to Genesis chapter 1. And if you remember Genesis chapter 1, that is detailing the seven days of creation. And it began in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 by saying, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the way that John chapter 1 verse 1 starts is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we proceed to get a lot of the similar metaphors that are found in Genesis. Right In Genesis, we have God creating the light and the darkness and all these different things. And he creates the earth and he creates man and he breathes life into man. Well, whenever we get to Jesus, we have him being the light that shines in the darkness. He takes flesh upon himself so that he can give light and life to man. Right, So we have all these metaphors going on. And so it would actually make sense because if you remember how Genesis chapter 2 starts... It begins with the seventh day of creation, the day when God rested. Well, in the same way, this would go to the seventh day, wherein that's where chapter 2 of John starts, right? Genesis chapter 2 starts, seventh day of creation. John chapter 2 starts with um, the seventh day. 
Uh, and so that's what some people would say. They would say just as Genesis 2 opens by detailing that, so John 2 also opens up with that. And therefore, we have this very nice parallel with Genesis. We have the seven days of creation, and we have the first seven days of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is a valid theory, right? You can actually see the parallels, and it's very possible from my perspective that is what John was going for here. But more likely, I would actually put a heavier emphasis on the fact that what the author John is doing here is that he is simply demonstrating that the events unfolding were real historical events that he himself was an eyewitness to. Because if you remember, I said that I believe on the third day, Jesus met John, the author of this book. Right? I believe that John was one of the apostles, one of the disciples that Jesus met during this week. And so I think that the very close chronology here is just John demonstrating that he realized these were significant events and he remembers the precise chronology of everything that's happening. You'll remember that earlier in chapter one, he remembered the exact hour that they went and spent time with Jesus. He remembers exactly what time it was whenever they were with him and why they ended up staying with him that night and stuff like that, because he remembered these were significant events. And so I would say that that seems to be the main focus, but I wouldn't discount the idea that there is also the parallel between this account and the Genesis narrative, right? I think that both of those are there, and so it's worth noting, right? So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, and that would be the seventh day after we began the Gospel of John with the people who came to question John the Baptist about his identity. So as we learned in the last section, Jesus and his disciples began making their way to Galilee, Right? That's the whole thing that set off the introduction of Jesus to Philip and Nathaniel. They were making their way to Galilee, and along the way they ran into these two guys. Here, in this passage, we're learning why they were going to Galilee. It wasn't that they were simply deciding to go up there. It's because Jesus had been invited to a wedding. The wedding was in a town called Cana in Galilee, which was located just about seven miles north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. If you remember Nazareth, we've talked about this in past weeks. Nazareth was just this tiny little town up on a hill that not many people knew about, and most people didn't have a high, uh, they didn't really consider a lot of great things about it. Uh, they had a little bit of a prejudice against people from Nazareth because they didn't think that it was a very significant place. Uh, but Cana it was just about seven miles north of that, so it's also in the Galilean region in northern Israel. And we read that on the third day there was a wedding there, and so Jesus and his disciples were invited, and they went... And we read that the mother of Jesus was there. We know that who John is talking about is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But interestingly enough, her name is never found in this gospel. Obviously, in gospels like Matthew and Luke, we have Mary specifically being referenced, especially with greater emphasis in the infancy stories, you know, with you actually have the nativity story where Jesus is being born. You have a very big emphasis on Mary there. Um, but in the Gospel of John, we actually never get Mary being named. She appears four times in this Gospel, two times as part of the narrative, two other times just merely in passing. And in each of these, she is referred to simply as the mother of Jesus or his mother or simply, you know, in reference to their relationship. She's never actually called Mary. We just know her name from the other Gospels. But that brings up a question. Why was Jesus' mother at this wedding? 
Uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, which we'll talk about next week, in chapter 2, verse 12, we read that after this, after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So they stayed in Capernaum for a few days. But this would seem to suggest that his siblings were also at the wedding, right? So not only was his mother there, but his siblings were there, and after the wedding, all of them are going to go down to this town called Capernaum, which we've also talked about in past weeks and we'll talk about again next week. But they're going to go down to this place called Capernaum, which would imply that all of them, both Jesus, his mother, and his siblings, were all up there at this wedding. And that would seem to imply to us that this celebration was likely for a relative or a close family friend. Because not only do we have Jesus' family from Nazareth there, but we also have his disciples from Capernaum, Bethsaida, and and Cana, respectively, all of them have been invited to this wedding. They're all from surrounding regions, and they've been invited here. Uh, And so most likely, this is the wedding for a close family friend, a close relative, uh, and people will try to guess whose wedding this is. Literally, you can go on Google, and you will see all these people trying to speculate on whose wedding this could possibly be. Some people even suggest it was Jesus's, which I can tell you that's not the case. (laughs) But people will try to speculate about whose wedding this could possibly be, But that's pure speculation. That's all it is. If it was important, God would have told us in his word. That's what we always have to remember whenever we have tough questions. A lot of the times we'll really be so eager to learn the answers to our curiosities that we fail to realize that if it was significant, God would give us the answer. But more than that, we actually see that it's important uh, that the people who are at the center of this wedding, that the actual host of this wedding, that the couple getting married, it's important that their identities kind of remain a secret because what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to save them from public shame. And so to put their names in the story would actually contradict it because then they would be remembered as the people who ran out of wine at the wedding, which is exactly what Jesus didn't want happening to them. So rather than speculating about who it is, we should just be able to read the story and focus on things that the Bible wants us to focus on, right? So that's just my encouragement to you. Whenever you encounter things in the Bible, it's good to have healthy questions, but don't get lost in the speculations. We should really try to focus on the things God wants us to focus on. And so Jesus, his family, and his disciples are all at the wedding, and we read that when the wine ran out, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And in her response here, we see another reason Mary might have been at the wedding. Because given her reaction to the shortage on wine, it isn't impossible that Mary actually had some sort of role to play in the wedding, perhaps as a caterer or something of the likes. It would actually seem that maybe Mary had a more prominent role in the wedding than everybody else, like more than Jesus and more than the disciples and more than his brothers and sisters. It seems like Mary might have actually had a specific role, and whenever they ran out of wine, she had something to deal with fixing the problem. And before addressing the main topic here, before actually addressing the shortage on wine and everything, there's a side issue I do want to address. I don't think it's something that we should need to address But nevertheless, we will, because like I said, I'm wanting to address this book exhaustively, and I want to give you all the information necessary that I think is useful to you and for myself uh, when it comes to understanding this book. And the issue I want to address is this. Are we dealing with wine here, or are we dealing with grape juice? Uh, Like I said, this really shouldn't be a topic of discussion, but sometimes people will cause a big fuss over it, debating whether or not the topic at hand is grape juice or wine. 
Many people who adamantly oppose alcohol of any kind will try to argue that Jesus would never have possibly created wine, and they'll argue that the Greek word used here, oinos, would better be translated grape juice. The issue with that theory is that there is no reason to think that. And what those people are engaging in is a thing called eisegesis, right? What they're doing is they're reading their own perspective into the text. What we want to do is we want to engage in something called exegesis. Whenever we read out of the text, whenever we take what the Bible says at face value and interpret it with that perspective, trying to get rid of all of our biases and allow the Bible to form our perspective on things. There really is no reason whatsoever to think that we're talking about grape juice. I know that that would support a lot of different theories that people would like to say, but ultimately there's no reason to think that. Firstly, as we'll see later on in this passage, whatever they were drinking was expected to have some sort of effect on the people drinking them, hence why the good stuff was served first. This is actually going to be crucial to the whole story. Whenever the water is turned to wine, the master of the feast is going to praise the bridegroom, saying most people serve the good wine first to get people drunk, so that whenever they were already inebriated and they drunk freely, then they would have like the lesser stuff. right? So the whole point here is that it's wine because it's it's expected to have some sort of effect. Obviously, the Bible never endorses getting drunk. The Bible says that you are allowed to drink. You're not allowed to get drunk. Whenever you have passed into a state of drunkenness, that is whenever it would be considered a sin. But obviously, in the context of this passage, the effect is expected. There's going to be something happens and you don't have that with grape juice. Believe me, I drink grape juice. You don't have that effect. Uh, Secondly, given the climate of that region, grape juice began to ferment almost immediately after being crushed, right? So fermentation was, um, it was very quick in this climate that they were in. So basically, if you wanted to have grape juice, you had to have like crushed it, put it in a cup and drink it then, right? If you had any grape juice that had been sitting for longer than a day, it was going to be fermenting. (laughs) So um, this is another reason to think that you're, you're reading too much into it by trying to force your own perspective into the text. And then furthermore, Jewish people had a very high perspective of wine. According to the Talmud, we read this whole debate about what's the most important thing at a meal, and we read this. What are these special needs of a meal? The rabbi said, it is referring to meat. And Shemuel said, it is referring to wine. The rabbi said, it's referring to meat because the soul replaces the soul. For instance, the meat replenishes the person's strength. And Shemuel said, it is referring to wine, because the red replaces the red. For instance, red wine substitutes for red blood. So here we have this whole debate where people are debating over what's the most important thing at a meal. One guy says, food is the most important, the bread. We need bread at a meal. The other guy says, no, we need wine, right? And they're trying to debate over what's most important, which would signify that both are usually present at their meals, (laughs) They're just trying to figure out what is the necessity, which one's the most important. Wine had a very high, like there was a high perspective for wine in Jewish culture. And like I said, while drunkenness has always been forbidden in Old Testament and New Testament alike, the Bible actually says a lot of positive things about wine. I am somebody who I personally choose not to drink, but I do want to just think biblically about all of this and There are good things that are said about wine and about alcohol in the Bible. And you want to take those at face value. You just also want to recognize the dangers of it. 
So what's being referred to here is wine made from fermented grapes. At the same time, however, I do want to make a clarification. It should be noted that, in order to avoid inebriation, wine in the ancient world was often diluted between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength. According to D.A. Carson, undiluted wine about the strength of wine today was viewed as strong drink and earned much more disapprobation. So while what we're talking about is wine, it would have definitely been a diluted wine. They wouldn't have drank just wine like we do today, like, like the wine that you would just go buy at a store, because that was considered strong drink, and it makes you drunk a lot quicker. Well, the Jewish people trying to obey the commandments of God, they did not want to get drunk. And so they would dilute the wine to avoid inebriation. Because there are some health benefits you can get from wine. We actually see that in the New Testament when Paul's talking to Timothy. And he actually encourages Timothy to drink some wine. Uh, because Timothy's had an upset stomach. right? So he's actually saying maybe it'll help your health out to actually drink some wine. Uh, and so there are the health benefits there. And the Bible says good things about wine. But they would dilute the wine in order to make sure they didn't get drunk. And so... Like I said, this is not a main issue. I just felt the need to address it because there are a lot of people who will try to make a big deal out of something that shouldn't be a big deal. And so to those people, I'd say this. It's not just grape juice. It is wine. But if it makes you feel any better, it was diluted wine. So we do need to recognize that there is freedom to drink alcohol, but we do not have that freedom to go out and get drunk because that is still a command given to us by God to not go do but let's move on. Let's actually talk about the stuff that is important to the text at hand. I just wanted to address that so it's hopefully helpful to you. So what's the importance of the wine running out? That's the main thing that we need to know in order to grasp really the whole importance of this entire story here. Uh, and in order to understand that, I think we need to know some context regarding Jewish weddings and Jewish marriage in general. And so um, to basically give you that, uh, the wedding marked the end of the betrothal period, a multi-month ordeal wherein the couple was considered legally man and wife, yet did not yet live together nor consummate their marriage. So the betrothal period was kind of like engagement, but really a lot stronger. So by law, these, like these two people, the couple, they were man and wife, and they were bound to each other in a way that we would consider equivalent to modern-day marriage, the only difference being is that they didn't live together yet and they didn't consummate the relationship yet. You actually remember this story with um, Mary and Joseph, right? At the time, whenever Mary became pregnant with Jesus, she was betrothed to Joseph, right? So they weren't yet living together and they hadn't consummated their relationship, but they were betrothed. And that's why we read that Joseph legally was considering divorcing her. Because even a betrothal could only be ended by divorce, even though they hadn't consummated the relationship yet. So it's a very different thing than our current system today with like just dating, engagement, marriage. They would get betrothed, and then typically what would happen is the guy would go off and he'd build a house. We actually read about this in the Song of Solomon. We see this exact process playing out. I just bumped my microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know if you could hear that or not. Uh, but basically... They would get betrothed, and the reason why they wouldn't consummate the relationship yet, it was to make sure that they were being faithful to one another. Um, that's why, really, the whole thing with Mary was so scandalous. Because a lot of the times, the betrothal period would take a long time to make sure that they weren't doing anything they weren't supposed to be doing. Right? If the girl got pregnant during that time period, it would either suggest that she'd been cheating on the man, or they'd been sleeping together when they weren't supposed to. 
right? And so that was why it was so scandalous. But at that time period, they would not yet consummate the relationship. They wouldn't yet live together. And at the end of the betrothal period, on the night of the wedding ceremony, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house and they would escort the bride and her attendants to the banqueting hall, typically the groom's house, where the actual wedding would take place. Right, so in the night, they would go there, they'd get the bride, and they would go there. It'd be a huge party, and then the actual wedding would begin. And the wedding ceremony itself, the wedding, it would be broken into two different parts. First would be the ceremony, and then that would be followed by the feast. The ceremony, that would be held, and that would just be a much smaller group. That would be the actual ceremony where they're, you know, we, we have that nowadays. It'd be equivalent to modern wedding ceremonies. And then the wedding feast afterwards would be equivalent to what we would call the wedding reception. The difference being that the wedding feast in Jewish times, that could last up to seven days. Uh, it didn't have to last that long, but it, like some Jewish wedding ceremonies, they would last, uh, not wedding ceremonies, the wedding feast, they would last up to seven days. And it was this huge ordeal. So the wedding ceremony was for a smaller and more intimate crowd, and it would be followed by the wedding feast, which was for a much larger crowd and could last a really, really long time. So weddings could last up to a week, and the financial responsibility of the celebration fell on the groom. And that's another significant, uh, significant difference between Jewish weddings and the weddings that we celebrate today, because a lot of the times nowadays, or at least traditionally, uh, nowadays it'd be the, uh, the bride's family typically pays a brunt force of the, uh, the wedding. Uh, but back then, a lot of the financial responsibility of the celebration fell on the groom and maybe his family, but really primarily the groom himself. And so in a Jewish society, wine was associated with prosperity. And there was no more important place to display such prosperity than at a wedding because this was when a man could display to his wife's family that he could provide for their daughter. Right? These people have just entrusted their daughter, their little girl, to him for life. And so he wants to display that he can provide for them. And so he wants to have wine that everybody can party with. Right? He wants to demonstrate that he can provide not only for her, but for all those who have come to celebrate their marriage. So running out of wine would be more than simply an embarrassing event. It would have been a debacle leading to public shame, especially in an honor-shame culture such as theirs, which is a little bit different than ours. In their culture, it would defile their name in public and wouldn't bode well for their marriage. It'd be like a bad omen that would hover over their entire relationship for the rest of their lives, and it would kick things off with a really, really rocky start. And according to some commentaries, there is also some evidence that such a faux pas could lay the groom open to a lawsuit from the relatives of the new bride. I myself couldn't find, like I'm just going to be straight honest with you here, I couldn't find any original sources affirming that, but there are many trustworthy commentaries that did mention this. I just couldn't find the original sources backing that up. So I believe it is trustworthy, but I just want to be straightforward with you. I don't know for sure. But there is the possibility that the man could possibly be liable for a lawsuit by the bride's family for running out of wine because he is demonstrating from the very get-go that he can't live up to the promises he made. So that would be a bad, that'd be a really bad deal. And so long story short, they've run out of wine, right? This wedding has faced a very terrible situation and the, like the couple here, the people who just got married, they're facing the possibility of public shame. And so Mary goes up to Jesus to let him know. She walks up to him and says, they have run out of wine. And that raises another question. Why does Mary go to Jesus? 
And I'm going to give you a short answer here and a long answer here. The short answer would be that we don't know. We don't know why Mary goes up to Jesus. There could be many different reasons, but the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why she went to him. But there are certain things that are implied in the text and that are implied really throughout the rest of the Gospels that would suggest to us some reasons, and so that would inform our longer answer. And there are many theories proposed for why she goes up to Jesus about this, but I'm going to provide two different reasons. The first theory would be this. Some suggest that the wedding ran out of wine because Jesus had brought five extra guests. So Mary goes to him because he is the source of the problem. You'll notice in the verse what it says is, um, back in verses 1 and 2, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So it isn't explicitly stated that the disciples were invited. It says Jesus was invited with his disciples. The most straightforward understanding of that would be that the disciples were also invited, but some people would look at it and they would say, actually, maybe Jesus was the only one invited. He brought five extra people, and because of those five extra people, they ran out of wine. I would say that that seems very unlikely, um, mainly because I would think that the addition of five extra people shouldn't change the amount of wine that much. They should be providing enough to account for that. You would think that you would allow for some flexibility there and you'd provide an exuberant amount. But also that just seems contradictory to this. That, that, that would almost place the blame on Jesus. And that would not seem to make as much sense to me. It, it actually, it's a kind of funny theory um, that Jesus just kind of, he's a wedding crasher who just brings a bunch of extra people. But it doesn't really seem to support the context of the rest of the story. Because then it, would, then it would almost make it seem like Jesus was righting a wrong that he'd done. It was like, oh no, I accidentally brought five extra people. Let me fix this problem. That doesn't seem to be the point here. Uh, so it's possible, but it's very unlikely. The second theory, I would say, is a lot more plausible. And there's multiple components to this. Most likely, Mary held some sort of special role over the wedding, like we've already said, that made her responsible for what was going on. You'll notice in those first verses, it said that the mother of Jesus was there, whereas Jesus and his disciples, they were invited, right? So Jesus was invited, she was there. That would seem to imply that there was like a different relationship to the wedding. Where Jesus had to be invited, she was there for another reason. Uh, maybe she actually had a role in this, like we've already addressed. Thus, when the wine ran out, she approached her eldest son to help solve the problem. Right? So she's actually going to Jesus because she needs somebody to help out with her job. And with this assumption, her approaching Jesus could actually suggest a few things. And the first of those things would be that Jesus was a known problem solver. This would actually make sense given the character of Jesus. He is the perfect and sinless creator of the universe who stepped into the world. I doubt that Mary had that full understanding yet, but she did at least know that he was the Messiah and the promised deliverer. And you can guarantee that raising him up he was the sinless kid who always did the right thing. He was a known problem solver, and so it would make sense that she would go to him to help fix the problem. But there's also a second thing that follows from this. Um, not only was Jesus a problem solver, but it also follows that Joseph, the father of Jesus, was probably dead at this point. Uh, I know that's kind of sad, but it's most likely true. Whenever you compare this account with the rest of the Gospels, you'll notice that Joseph never shows up again after Jesus is 12 years old. You have the account, uh, the one story we have of Jesus as a child is whenever he's 12 years old and he, uh, his parents accidentally leave him behind in Jerusalem whenever he's in the temple. 
And then they come find him. And that's the last we hear of Joseph. We have Mary and Joseph going and finding Jesus. And Jesus says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And then after that, we never hear of Joseph again in person. Later on in the Gospel of John, we'll have Joseph referenced. And we have Joseph referenced and stuff, but he never actually appears. We actually always have Mary and the brothers of Jesus with Joseph never being mentioned. And so it would actually seem to suggest that Joseph has probably died at this point, which would therefore make Jesus, her eldest son, the head of the household. Right? If Mary was a widow, then Jesus would be the head of the household because he's the eldest child. Right? He was the one born to her while she was a virgin. And then after that, her and Joseph had other kids. So Jesus is her eldest boy. It's the one she has to go to to help figure out problems because Joseph is most likely dead at this point. Uh, And that's really sad, but it's probably the point. So prior to this moment, Mary had probably learned to rely on Jesus not only for problem solving, but for provision in general. Like his father, he was a craftsman, so they'd probably learned to rely on him for their source of income and provision. So she comes up to him and says this, They have no wine. That raises another question. What did Mary expect Jesus to do about the problem? Uh, For this, I'll actually provide three different possibilities as to what Mary might have been expecting. Once again, we can't know for sure, but we can basically, uh, we can hypothesize based off the information we have. The first thing she might have been expecting is that she wasn't expecting anything at all, right? Some people argue that Mary didn't expect Jesus to do anything, but that she was just sharing bad news. Uh, She just walks up to him and she's like, hey, Jesus, bad news, man. (laughs) They're out of wine at the wedding. Uh, that could be the case, but as we will see, that doesn't seem to make much sense in context of the story because she's going to have a clear expectation that he's going to do something in a few verses. So that would bring us to the second possibility. Others would suggest on the total opposite end of the spectrum that she expected exactly what she got, a full-blown miracle. So the first people, they would say that she didn't expect anything. She was just sharing bad news. Other people would say that she went to Jesus expecting him to do exactly what he did. That she was expecting him to turn water to wine, to produce wine from nothing, to do something miraculous. However, the Gospel of John clearly states that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And so, since this is clearly stated to be the first of his miracles, we have no reason to think that Mary anticipated that either. It wouldn't make much sense for her to expect that because he's 30 years old at this point, And at this point, he hasn't performed any miracles. So it'd be strange for her to walk up to him and just expect him to perform an outright miracle. Once again, it's possible. But to me, it doesn't seem as likely given the context of their relationship thus far. So that would bring us to the third theory, which I would once again say is probably the most accurate. The most likely solution is that she simply turned to Jesus because he had demonstrated himself to be a reliable and resourceful son. With Joseph dead, the mother turns to her eldest son to take care of the problem at hand. This is a woman who might be possibly failing at her job here or trying to solve a problem to just prevent, like maybe it's not even her responsibility. Maybe she's just trying to prevent a major social mess and she's coming up to her son who she knows cares for people and she wants him to help out. A family's reputation is at hand, and she doesn't want the party to go sour. So knowing the compassion of her son, she turns to him and asks for help. And in verse 4, we read this. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And you can hear that. 
And I know most I know exactly what you're probably thinking. Most of us are cringing whenever Jesus says woman. But really the whole response is kind of jarring. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, our first impl- uh, our first assumption, it seems like at face value Jesus is being rude. And so I want to address that problem. Is Jesus being rude here? I don't think so. Obviously, uh, spoiler alert, you should probably have seen that coming. Uh, No, I do not believe that Jesus is being rude here, but I do think that he is issuing a rebuke. And so we're going to break that down. And let's start off with the word woman, because Jesus turns to his mother and he says, woman. And I don't know about you, but most likely you would not say that to your mother. And if you did, you'd probably get a slap right across the face. Uh, but right here, he's using the word, uh, the Greek word genai, and that term, it's polite, but it's not endearing, right? So it, it's very, it's a polite term. It's not the same as if we use the word woman to our mother. Uh, it's not that extreme, but it's also not as intimate as we would typically expect a son to speak to his mother. It's more intimate and caring than woman, but it's definitely a lot more distant than mom, right? So it lies in between there, and... While it does literally mean the word woman, uh, the closest equivalent that we would have in our modern jargon would likely be ma'am, right? So if he said ma'am, but even then, we might lose some context there because Southern, like, you know, Texas boys like me, we use the term ma'am to refer to our mothers. Like if my mom says something to me, I'll say, yes, ma'am. We'll use terms like that and we don't mean it in a distant way. And so while the term ma'am is probably the most equivalent, culturally speaking, even that, in some ways, might be too intimate than to what Jesus was getting across here. Um, he isn't responding in an expected fashion. That's really what I'm trying to get across. Um, so it's not as forceful and rude as woman, but it's not as intimate as mom. And it, it's close to ma'am, but a little more distant than that. Uh, he's not responding in an expected fashion at all. If you feel a bit unsettled by his response, it's probably because you should be unsettled. What he's saying is kind of off-putting. What we see happening here, uh, and I think this is key to understanding the passage, is what we see is there's a shift going on in the relationship between Mary and Jesus. Prior to this moment, Jesus related to Mary as his mother. But by calling her woman here, he is conveying that she no longer has parental authority over him because he is about to go about engaging his public ministry. So there's a shift in the relationship. Prior to this, the relationship was that of mother and son. But now, going forward, the relationship is going to be that of servant and Lord, of believer and Savior. There's a big shift here. The implication is that if he does anything at all, it will not be out of obedience, but out of honor. Right? So what he's doing here, he's clarifying that he is the one in authority now. And he's not doing this in a rude way. He's doing this, like, like this. I don't recommend you going out and doing this. This is something that he exclusively, as the son of God, can do. Because right here, he is saying that he is about to embark on something that is greater than just their relationship could handle. There's going to have to be a shift because what we're going to see is that like all of us, she needs a savior as well. So furthermore, he asks her, what does this have to do with me? He's intentionally establishing a certain level of distance between them. She comes to him with a problem that she has. And he says, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? Because if your mom comes to you with a problem as a son, that does become your problem as well. 
But he's creating this distance. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? As gently as possible, he is making something evident. His chief concern going forward is not in worldly matters, but in heavenly ones. And I probably can't emphasize this enough. And if you're a mother listening to this, maybe you'll understand it even better than I possibly could. But this had to have been extremely difficult for Mary. This is her little boy, the one she had nursed and raised and taught and cared for, yet it is consistent throughout the Gospels that any time Mary shows up throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, both in the Gospel of John and in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, any time Mary shows up throughout his ministry, Jesus is always establishing a distance between himself and her, not out of callousness, but out of provision and in an attempt to point people towards the kingdom of God. Anytime Mary shows up, Jesus is not going to receive her as a mother. He's going to receive her in such a way that actually establishes a distance between them. And that doesn't mean he's not going to provide for her. Even at the cross, he is providing for her. He's going to turn to the beloved apostle and he's going to say, here is your mother. And he's going to turn to his mother and say, here is your son. And he's going to provide for her in the wake of his death. But the point being is that he does create a distance in between them. Some people would even say, going back to the Gospel of Luke, there's this prophecy given to Mary that a sword will will pierce her very soul. And most of us would interpret that to mean that she's going to have to witness her own child die. And I would say that's the greater emphasis here, but some people would even associate that prophecy with this. Because right here... Jesus is creating this distance that had to be so heartbreaking for Mary. But the reason he does this is because, like all of us, she needed to come to see him, her eldest son, as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, including her own sin. There had to be that separation because she could no longer see him as her little boy. She had to see him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom she also would have to answer on Judgment Day. So from the wedding at Cana onwards, he is no longer simply her son, but her king. But then he continues. Not only does he say, woman, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. And throughout the Gospel of John, reference will be made to Jesus' hour at the, in the time of his Uh, in the time of its arrival, right? So if you're wondering what does he mean by my hour has not yet come, that's going to be fleshed out over the course of the Gospel of John, but I'll give you a little spoiler warning right here. Uh, What he means by his hour is this. For chapters 1 through 11, during the time of his public ministry, we will read again and again that his hour had not yet come, and that's during his public ministry. From chapter 12 onwards, during the time describing his final days leading to his crucifixion, we will see that his hour had come at last. So the way you can actually break down the Gospel of John is chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 21. Chapters 1 through 11 are detailing his public ministry, which culminates with the resurrection of Lazarus. Chapters 12 through 21 detail his final days, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Right, And so all of that is constructed in that way to demonstrate that the public ministry is when the hour had not yet come and the hour that is being spoken of is his death and resurrection so ultimately when we read of jesus hour it's a reference to his death and so in context what jesus is telling her whenever he says my hour has not yet come is he is saying that the time has not yet come for him to go public because he knows that once he does go public he begins the path towards crucifixion 
Aligning with this, as we will see, the miracle he's about to perform is considered his first public miracle, but really it's more so semi-public, right? So he's saying it's not time to go public yet, and what he's about to do is not going to be extremely public. As far as we know, the only people who actually know what happened at this wedding are the servants and the disciples, right? We're going to know that the servants see what Jesus is doing, and then we're going to see that the disciples believe in him. But other than that, we don't know if even Mary had any idea of how Jesus takes care of the problem. We just know that the problem is taken care of, and most people might not even have any idea how. So this miracle Jesus is about to perform isn't an entirely public miracle because his hour hasn't yet come, and he's not wanting to cause a huge stir quite yet. As we will see, when Jesus does decide to go public, he'll go public big time. He isn't going to make a big show in the little town of Cana. What he's going to do when he goes public, it will be in the middle of the temple of God in Jerusalem during the busiest time of the entire year. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about next week when Jesus actually does go public. And it's going to be a big spectacle. The point of this, the point is this, I could say. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew precisely what was to come. Even here, before his public ministry began, he was anticipating its end. Right here, when he's speaking to Mary, he knows exactly when his hour is to come, and he says it isn't here yet. Jesus was completely in tune with God's will. He was waiting for the right time to set him on the path towards his own crucifixion. And whenever that time comes, we will see that even then he is in charge. And that's why we have the Gospels presenting him as turning to Judas and saying, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And then he comes up to the people who have come to arrest him and he willingly gives himself over. And whenever his disciples, such as Peter, try to defend him, he tells them to get down, put away your swords. Right? So Jesus is going to be in charge of this entire thing. And even from the beginning, before his public ministry has even begun, even then, he's in charge. And he knows when his hour is to come. Even right here, before he's performed his first miracle, he knows that once he begins, it will ultimately lead to his death for you and for me. That is the glorious truth and the beautiful grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to miss that. Even before he began, he knew he would die. Even before creation began, he knew what would happen. That's the beautiful story of how amazing God is. So while he is not yet going public with his ministry, he is foreshadowing that his public ministry is about to begin, hence why he calls her woman. So he's not yet starting the public ministry, but the fact that he's telling her that their relationship has shifted would suggest that Things are about to change big time. And so in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And when you're reading this straight through, you might actually be kind of shocked by her response here because it would seem to almost contradict what he just said to her, right? She just came up to him and said, we have no wine. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So from our perspective, it might seem like he is turning her down. But then she proceeds to turn to the servants and say, do whatever he tells you. And so we'd be like, wait a second. Is this his mother like forcing her way into and like still trying to exert her authority over him? I don't think so. And I'll explain that here. While it might at first appear to contradict what has just been said, in fact, it is something much more beautiful. What I see when I read this and when I've studied the commentaries that other people have written and stuff, they would seem to agree 
is that Mary, accepting her son's rebuke, comes to him now not as a mother approaching a son, but as a believer coming before her Lord, persevering in her faith and trusting in his provision. Because what he's just said is, woman, what does this have to do with me? Right? He's saying, if you expect me to do this because I'm your son, you've got to realize we have a different relationship now. I'm about heavenly matters. And so what she's going to do is she's not coming to him as a mother to a son anymore. Now she is coming to him in a different way. When she approached him in verse 3, she was relying on their familial bond to motivate him to solve the problem. But now she puts the matter entirely in his hands and gives all the authority to him. In fact, this is something that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. John is so beautiful because there's so many rich themes. And this is another one we're going to see. Oftentimes, Jesus will refuse to help someone at first, seemingly as a test of their faith. Yet then he will proceed to help them in a different and greater manner than initially anticipated. Right? So this is going to be a consistent theme. We're going to see it again in chapter 4. We're going to see it in chapter 11. People are going to come to Jesus, and at first he's going to seemingly deny them the request. But then whenever their faith perseveres, he will provide them with something greater than they could have expected. And so Mary comes here, and she just wants Jesus to take care of the problem. What we're going to see is that he's going to go above and beyond taking care of the problem. So Mary doesn't try to force Jesus to act. She simply tells the servants to do whatever he says. And for all she knows, he could tell them to go sit back down and not worry about it. What is happening here is that she is transferring whatever authority she has and giving it to him. Rather than being offended by his rebuke, Mary submits willingly and trusts in her king. This is a beautiful and great testimony of how godly a woman Mary is because she has just been rebuked by her own son, yet she willingly steps back and places her belief in him. And she tells the servants, hey, do whatever he says. For all she knows, he, doesn't, he isn't going to take care of the problem. But what we're going to see is that because of her faith and because of what he's planning here, he is going to go above and beyond. And I also don't want you to miss this. Her words to the servants step beyond the page, and they should speak directly to our souls as well. We likewise are to do whatever Jesus tells us to do, even as we are about to see if it doesn't at first make sense. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And I believe that is also meant to speak to us. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Whatever he says, go do it. What Jesus is about to ask the servants to do is not going to make sense to them, but it's going to pay off big time. I would say the same thing. There are plenty of things that you're going to find written in the Bible, and you might not want to do them. But if you do them, it will pay off. Because I believe that God is trustworthy and you should listen to him. So don't miss that. I believe that those words are spoken not only to the servants, but to us. Because just as they are about to serve the wishes of Jesus, so we should too with all of our lives. Verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So the jars were usually filled with the water for purification uh, purposes, such as washing hands. And you might ask yourself, what's the signification of these purification jars? Right? Because it seems like John goes out of his way to specify that these jars were purification and he tells us exactly how big they were. And so you might be curious, kind of like with the whole seven days thing, what's the purpose of these jars? 
And for that, I will give you two theories. I like to give you multiple perspectives. Uh, theory number one is that some would argue that the purification jars represent the Jewish law, right? Because they were associated with the cleansing and the purification that we've even talked about in past weeks, like with the Levites and the priests. Um, so some people would say that the jars represent the Jewish law. So Jesus' use of them demonstrates his replacing the law with something greater. Now, there's actually a play on words there, right? By having the empty jars fully filled, Jesus is going to demonstrate himself to be the fulfillment of Judaism. Fully filled fulfillment. It's funny. It's punny. It's cool. Um, this is another common theme of the Gospel of John, so you don't want to just um, get rid of it and discount it, uh, because a lot of the times in the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus being the fulfillment of Judaism. He's going to say of the temple that... If you destroy the temple, he's going to rebuild it in three days. And he's going to basically discredit the physical temple and say that his body is a greater temple, right? His body is the greater tabernacle. And he's going to do a lot of things like that where he does demonstrate himself to be the fulfillment of Judaism. And so we don't want to discount that possibility. And that is a very strong possibility there. However, I would say that once again, you'll see this is a also a very consistent way of my interpretation here, I would say that the second theory would be better, and that theory would be this. In actuality, the real significance is likely just the author demonstrating once again that this was a real event in real time that really happened. That's what I said about the whole seven days thing, and that's what I say here again. And if you want to know why I typically lean towards that interpretation of the text, it's because the Gospel of John is so clearly... In it's so clearly a gospel about witness and testimony, right? According to the end of the gospel of John, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I believe that what John is doing here is that he is giving us all these eyewitness testimonies to what has happened. And so whenever he gives these little details like chronology or the six purification jars and how much they held, it seems like his main emphasis is to remind us that the person telling us these stories was an eyewitness who saw these things so that we can trust what he is saying. So that's why I would lean to that. And I don't want to discount the other things that are being said there, like the, the seven days being parallel to Genesis or these jars being parallel to the idea of the Old Testament law. I don't want to discount those too much because those are very possible. And I wouldn't be surprised if, the, if John is doing both. But I lean towards the more eyewitness aspect of it because that is a stated purpose of the Gospel of John. And so that's just so you know why I lean that direction. Um, so what we read is that they filled these, um, these jars up to the brim. And there are two significant things about this statement. Firstly, this would demonstrate that nothing was added into the water to make it wine, right? This is a miracle of transformation. It's not like he had water and then he sprinkled some Kool-Aid dust in there, <laughs> Kool-Aid powder, and then shook it up and it turned into Kool-Aid, right? Uh, it's not that he added anything to make it something that looked and tasted and felt like wine, uh, that couldn't have happened. They filled these jars up to the brim. And that would be the first implication there. So there's no way of getting around what Jesus did here. He couldn't have added anything to transform it. They were filled to the top. But the second thing is actually even cooler to me. And that's this. This would be a display of Jesus's grace. Because if you think about this, he could have simply had them only fill up one jar and he could have had them only fill it up halfway full. But instead, he had them fill up six jars to the brim because he wasn't simply going to save the wedding party from humiliation. What he was going to do was give them a wedding present, 
right? If each of these jars held 20 to 30 gallons and there were six of them, that's 120 to 180 gallons worth of wine. That's a whole lot of wine. Not only, he's not just saving them from humiliation. He's going above and beyond and giving them something way greater. This is like the ultimate wedding present, especially once we see the quality of the wine. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Brief question, who is the master of the feast? To answer this quickly, other translations will call him the master of the banquet, the master of ceremonies, the head waiter, the man in charge of the feast. Uh, the Greek word would literally just translate to the ruler of the table. Um, so basically, it's just the guy who's in charge of the wedding. He was most likely the chief steward or the head waiter, the person in charge of the party, be that catering the food or perhaps even the host of the wedding venue. Uh, we don't really know exactly what his role is, but he's obviously the one in charge of the food, to say the least. Right? He's the one you go to to make sure everything is going well. And so they didn't want to go to him and tell him about the wine being out because that would have been an issue. Instead, they're going to him to let him taste the wine before they give it out to everybody else. And so before we move on to verses 9 and 10, which we're about to, I just want you to put yourself in the story and sense the tension here. One thing I like to do whenever I read the Bible is I try to imagine myself as one of the characters in the story to try to actually feel the emotion of what's going on here. And imagine you're one of the servants, right? This woman just came up to you and said to just do whatever her son says to do. And as far as you know, you've seen this guy before. He's just a craftsman from a little town called Nazareth. And he tells you to fill up these purification jars with water. Purification jars that are usually used to clean your hands and wash your hands and wash your body and stuff. So he tells you to fill this up with water, then scoop out some water and go bring it to the guy in charge of the feast. There's a lot of tension there because you are most likely freaking out, thinking you're about to lose your job, and maybe you're going to be the one humiliated because you're about to just go deliver water that's usually used for like cleaning and stuff. You're about to just give water to the guy and like, I don't know, just... There's a lot of tension there. I can imagine the servants feeling really dumb as they're doing this. And I, so I just, I laugh at that because we sometimes overlook that. But they do it, right? They obey and they go scoop out the water and they bring it to the master of the feast. And we read this in verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Whenever I read this, and honestly, this happens with most miracles that I read about in the Bible, I just can't help but notice how understated the miracle is. Did you notice how not understated it is there? When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know, like, you can just keep reading and you almost miss it. Because it just says the water now become wine and then moves on as if that was just a casual thing. As if every day water became wine. And we can really freak out about that and be like, oh my gosh. But I think the reason why it's so understated is because this is the author John writing from a post-resurrection perspective of Jesus. And so he has seen so many greater things. Remember in chapter one where we read that Jesus was talking to the disciples and he said, you will see greater things than these. He was talking that, he said that to Nathaniel. He said, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree? Believe me, you'll see greater things than these. I think the author, John, he's writing from a perspective where he has seen so many greater things. He has seen things greater than water becoming wine. He has seen a dead man take a breath, 
right? He has seen a storm grow calm whenever a guy just starts talking. He has seen the creator of the universe hung from a cross and die only to come back to life three days later. And greater than all of this, he has seen people dead in their sins come to be alive in Christ Jesus. And so I believe that he can look back at a miracle like this, and it's something amazing and perplexing and beautiful. Yet he can say it so casually because he's like, yeah, the water became wine because that's what Jesus does. It's just like, it's nothing for Jesus. Of course, he's, he's Jesus. He's the creator of the world. Of course he can turn water to wine. I just love how understated that is. But let's move on. So the master of the feast calls to the bridegroom because the groom was the one responsible for providing all the food and drink. Right? So the master of the feast, he drinks the wine and he's like, whoa, that was great. And he doesn't turn to the servants. He doesn't turn to Jesus. He doesn't turn to Mary. He turns to the groom. And he starts addressing the groom and he starts complimenting the groom for what has occurred here. Right? So thus, Jesus' first miracle wasn't to increase his own reputation because only a few people even knew about it. But rather, he did this miracle to save another man's reputation. You'll notice that what Jesus does, he never performs a miracle simply to meet his own needs. Rather, all of his miracles meet the specific needs of those around him and to testify to his identity. Right? So all the miracles that Jesus does, they either help people or they testify to who he is. And typically, it's both. Honestly, always it's both. I, I can't think of a single example where it's not for the benefit of somebody and also uh, in order to testify to his identity. It's always both together. And so the miracle helped a family and their guests be prevented from a social calamity. Right? So what Jesus is doing here, he's helping this guy out, and it's just absolutely amazing. And so what the master of the feast says is he says that everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, a.k.a. when they got drunk or whenever, you know, their tongues have been dulled, <laughs> uh, then they would serve the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. And so since wedding feasts typically lasted multiple days, up to seven days, as we've talked about, the host would typically serve the best stuff at the beginning so that once people's taste buds had dulled, they wouldn't mind as much or even notice when the lesser quality stuff was served later on. Um, but that's not what Jesus does here, right? Jesus doesn't just create like low quality wine. Uh, this is high quality wine. Uh, not only did Jesus provide wine for the groom and his guests, but he provided superior wine that was greater than, I can almost guarantee you, greater than any wine they'd ever tasted. So not only did Jesus provide wine for the groom and his guests, but he provided superior wine. Not only did he save the man from judgment, but he granted him honor instead. And this is such a perfect and beautiful and amazingly perfect portrait of the gospel. Because you see, whenever Jesus saves us from our wickedness, he doesn't just bring us back to even. He saves us from our wickedness, yes, but he also grants us righteousness. He grants us his righteousness. And that's exactly what he's doing with these people right here. What he's doing is he's not just saving them from humiliation. What he's doing is he's saving them from humiliation and granting them honor. He's not just bringing back to even. He's giving a gift on top of that. And what they probably deserved was to be humiliated because something happened where these people did not have enough wine. They came up with a shortage and they deserved to be humiliated. But what he did, regardless of what they deserved, is he ended up giving them honor. And that's the beautiful thing. And the, what's even more amazing than that is that most likely they didn't even know that he did it. 
And that just makes us think about how this goes even above and beyond the gospel. Because how many things are there that we don't even realize that Jesus has given us so much more than we could possibly ever deserve? Just think about that. Every time you look at a sunset, have you ever thought about the fact that we don't even deserve to have something that beautiful? Right? God could have just given us like boring, disgusting looking skies. He could have given us scary looking skies. He could have made them tinged with red and raining blood. But instead, what he did is he gave us these beautiful things where you can look at beautiful sunsets and you can quake at the lightning and thunder and you can realize the power of God. And there's all these different things. You can eat a strawberry and realize how sweet it is. And you can realize that these are all gifts that God did, that he went above and beyond what he had to do. And that is nowhere more clearly understood than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, we have Jesus going above and beyond, saving us from death and granting us not only life, but eternal life. He's not only forgiving us, but he's granting us his own righteousness. That's the beautiful thing. And that's what he's doing here with this couple. And right here, I do want to address an interesting side point, because I think that there might be implications on creation when it comes to the creation of this wine, uh, the age of creation specifically. And I don't want to take a specific standpoint on how old I believe the earth to be, because in all honesty, I don't study it that much, and I don't think that it's that big of an issue, except for the some people who do make it a really big issue, and they actually end up making a much bigger deal out of it than it should be, and they actually arrive at really bad conclusions based on their beliefs. Ultimately, I think you can have an old earth creation perspective and a young earth creation perspective, and you can still be saved by the grace of God because it's not a hill to die on. It's not a major thing. But every time I've read this story, there is a certain idea that's cropped up in my mind, and it it begins here, right? Like I said earlier, I don't drink alcohol, I don't drink wine, but there is something that I do know about wine, and that is this. Wine gets better with age, right? Over time, wine gets better and better. That's a well-known thing. Wine gets better with age. However, in an instant right here, Jesus created wine that is superior to the wine that they had been drinking. It was new wine, yet it obviously had the appearance of age. Even though it was just created right then and there, it tasted better than the wine they had been drinking earlier. And so every time I've read this, I've always thought, what could that say about creation? You know, I've just thought about it. I'm like, hmm, that might say something interesting there, especially when you're trying to justify why such a young earth could look so old. If you take the young earth perspective, if you think that maybe the world is really only a few thousand years old, for instance, why does it look so old whenever scientists observe it? And that's something that I just always thought of on my own. I really never looked into it because, I, like I said, I didn't really care that much. I've looked into the theories and I like studying stuff like that. But ultimately, it's not a hill to die on. So I really didn't care that much. But that's when I love coming across credible people who share the same hypothesis as myself. Because then I can take what they say and I can quote them and I can use it in a teaching. And then I can reference how I thought of it first. Except that's prideful and so I probably shouldn't. But um, I actually, I'm in seminary right now. I go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, I attend the Houston campus. But I was taking an online class going through the Gospels. And when we reached this passage, sure enough, Mark Bailey, he was my uh, professor. And he was also the former president of DTS. He actually had this to say about this passage. I don't know how old the earth is, but connecting John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, the wine that Jesus created had all the properties of aged wine. 
So if you would have done an analysis of the wine that Jesus had done scientifically, how old would that wine appear to be? And would be registered to be, not just appeared to be, aged wine. When God creates the world and he creates it as fully sustained universe with all the carbon deposits and the carbon-14 and the minerals for wealth and things like that, how long did it take him to do that? It's a bit of a mute question, isn't it? I don't believe in millions of years of evolution. I don't know how old the earth is. The Bible doesn't tell me that. But let's just take one example. How old is Adam when he was created? And if you looked at his teeth like you do a horse, and you would age him. Right? So what... Uh, Dr. Bailey was saying there is he's pointing out that the Bible it doesn't explicitly tell us how old the earth is right there are people who find flexibility in a bunch of different places maybe it's not talking about seven literal days maybe there's flexibility in all these different things and maybe there's gaps in the genealogy stuff like that so we don't know exactly how old the earth is but what he's pointing out is that the way that Jesus makes this wine here could have implications on the age of the earth given that the wine that Jesus created obviously had the appearance of age since it tasted so much better. And whenever you look at Adam uh, in the creation account of Genesis, it is implied that Adam is created as a man. So if you were to take Adam's teeth and you were to carbon date those, well, they would probably have the appearance of being a man's teeth, not a baby's teeth, right? So it would seem that what God can do is he can create things with the appearance of age without them actually being that old. That's what Jesus seems to have done here with the wine. That's what God seems to have done with Adam in Genesis. And that's also what seems to have been done with the plants in Genesis, right? He creates all these things, and it seems like they're immediately there in their fully grown state. Um, so that's just interesting. Uh, ultimately, like I said, it's not important, but it's an interesting thing to think about whenever it comes to the implications of this passage on the larger Bible interpretation as a whole. Uh, but let's move on. What is the point of this miracle? What's the big takeaway? And for this, I actually have three main things. The first takeaway is that Jesus has control over creation. He can take water and turn it to wine without having ever even touched it, right? He's, there's the water, there's the wine, boom. All he says is to, he tells people to fill it up. They fill it up to the brim. And then he says, okay, now go scoop some out and give it up. It's wine now. He obviously has power over creation, which would testify to his identity as the creator of the universe, Right. Once again, we still have this parallel to Genesis chapter 1 with God creating the universe. Jesus is demonstrating himself as that creator. Right. So we still have those parallels going. The second implication would be this. There might possibly be a parallel being drawn here between Moses and Jesus. Right. Because if you remember, the first public miracle of Moses was the plague of turning water to blood back in Exodus chapter 7. Whenever they're going to Egypt and he's beginning to free the people from bondage, the first thing he does is he turns water to blood. So there might be a parallel there with the fact that Jesus' first miracle is turning water to wine. Because if you look throughout scripture, blood is represented by wine on a very consistent basis. And we'll see that especially whenever you talk about things like the Lord's Supper and stuff, right? Blood and wine, there's this very close parallel and they obviously represent one another. Um, so I would say that could be a second takeaway. Um, Jesus could be compared to Moses, but he could also be above and beyond Moses, right? He's not having to stick his staff in the water. He's just having to tell people, fill up a, a jar with water, and then it turns into wine, right? So stuff like that, very cool. The third main takeaway, and I, I think this is probably the main takeaway you need to get from this, is found in the words, you have kept the good wine until now. When Jesus arrived, he began creating little traces of heaven on earth. 
And just as the wine he created was superior to all the other wine, so everything that comes with him is better than anything that came before. And the message we need to learn is that God saves the best for last. If you think that you've seen the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness and the mercy and the patience and the righteousness of God, just wait until you get to heaven. Right? What Jesus is demonstrating here is that he always saves the best for last. The good wine is typically served first, but what Jesus does is he flips the script. And rather than giving everybody the good stuff first and then giving them the bad stuff later, he gives them the bad stuff first so that they can truly learn to appreciate the good stuff later. And there's a lot of philosophical implications on that for why God would allow evil in the world. Right? He might save it like he allows us to endure this evil so that we can better appreciate the goodness when it arrives. Right? There's implications with a lot of different things, but what you need to learn is that God always saves the best for last because ultimately he's working all things for the good of those who love him. And so once things are ultimately worked out for their good, we will be with him for eternity. And that is the greatest good possible, and that is going to be the best thing, and that will be the last thing that lasts forever. And so I think that's the main implication of this passage. But let's move on because we have one more verse that we want to address. Chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what we see here is that John, the author, he refers to this as the first of Jesus's signs. And so I want to address very briefly Uh, Or actually, maybe not as briefly as it could be. (laughs) I want to address briefly what is the significance of these being called signs, right? And the first, uh, there's two different things I want to point out here. The first thing is that this is different from other miracles. Um, John specifically uses the word signs because he means something different by them. Uh, D.A. Carson would describe it like this. In John, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses. But they're signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So what D.A. Carson there does is he actually ties an important connection there between sign and significance. S-I-G-N, right? Significant. Um, Because the point of this is that whenever John presents these miracles of Jesus... He's going deeper than a lot of the other Gospels do. All the Gospels have something to say about Jesus' identity through his miracles. But John's going above and beyond by actually demonstrating that these miracles testify to the identity of Jesus. And so these are signs because they're almost like signposts pointing the way to heaven, right? If Jesus is the way, these are the signs that point us along the way. Right? So that's why these are significant. But there's also a second significance to these being signs, and that's because these signs were unique in the time of Christ. Uh, Because interestingly, at the time of Jesus Christ, miracles were very rare. And the general consensus of Jews at the time was that the time of signs and wonders had actually come to an end. Um, So they actually had a cessationist viewpoint of miracles where they believed that miracles no longer happened. Or if they did, they were very, very rare. According to the Talmud, um, one rabbi was pondering why miracles were no longer performed. And this is found in Berakoth 20a. And Rabbi Papa said to Abaye, What is different about the earlier generations for whom miracles occurred? And what is different about us for whom miracles do not occur? 
It cannot be because of Torah study. In the years of Rabbi Yehuda, all their learning was confined to the order of the Nezakin, while we learn all six orders. So right here, this one rabbi is confused because he's trying to figure out why miracles don't happen anymore. And he's like, well, it can't be because of Torah study because we actually study the Torah, which is the, you know, the first five books of the Bible. We study the law more than anybody else ever has before. And so he's just trying to figure out why don't we see miracles, right? And some actually taught that the time of miracles had come to an end at the time of Esther in the 5th century BC. So like 400 years before Christ. Uh, in Yoma 29, we read this. Rabbi Asi said, why was Esther likened to the dawn? It is to tell you, just as the dawn is the conclusion of the entire night, so too Esther was the conclusion of all miracles performed for the entire Jewish people. Um, so they actually, some people thought that the time of miracles came to an end after Esther, and therefore she's likened to the dawn because miracles, um, that miracles came to an end at that point. Right. So, however, despite that, there were some people who did claim to have performed miracles. And we do have some records of people performing miracles, but despite this, they were considered very rare. For instance, there's this guy named Phinehas bin Yair, uh, and he is said to have performed miracles, including dividing a river and passing through it on dry ground. These are all found in Jewish texts from around the time of Jesus or shortly afterwards. Uh, another guy named Honi the Circle Drawer is said to have stood in a circle and prayed for rain to fall. And then there was one man, Nahum of Gamzu, and he was blind in both eyes, both of his arms and legs were amputated, and his entire body was covered in boils. Despite this, he was known for his catchphrase, this too is for the good, and was said to have performed some miracles. I could have just told you he performed some miracles, but I actually thought that his story there was kind of cool, that he like had like all these disabilities, yet he was so optimistic that he said, this too is for the good, and I don't know, I found that really cool. Um, there are other rabbis who are said to have caused miracles through prayer, but by and large, these are traditions that might or might not be true. My main point here is that despite these um, relatively um, rare occurrences, um, the general view is that the time of miracles was over, which makes Jesus's signs very significant because he is pointing out and demonstrating that something new is happening and that the time of miracles might be at hand. And whenever Jesus shows up, you don't have people claiming that he's not actually performing them. Even his opponents are admitting that he performs miracles. Whenever we get to John chapter 11 and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you're not going to have the Jewish leaders saying that he didn't do that. In fact, they're going to want to kill Lazarus precisely because Jesus rose him from the dead. right? So they're not going to deny that Jesus is doing these things. And that's why another reason from John's perspective, these are significant signs. They're demonstrating that Jesus is something more. He's something bigger than the general perspective would have him be. Um, but the John also tells us that this is the first of Jesus' signs, right? He says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So he tells us this is the first of Jesus' signs, which would tell us that this is the first miracle, the very first miracle that Jesus performed. And the reason I emphasize that is because nowadays, thanks to books like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, there are a bunch of people running around saying that there are a bunch of lost books of the Bible that should have been in there, but aren't. And right here, obviously the Gospel of John isn't discounting all of them, but it does have something to say about some of them. And before we address that, first off, I do want to clarify that we have good reason for trusting that the books in the Bible are the ones that are meant to be there no more, no less. We have good reason to believe that the 66 books of the Bible 
39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, we have good reason to believe that those are the correct books that ought to be there. And if you want to find good resources for that, there are amazing books you can read. There are good YouTube videos you can go find right now, um, particularly Mike Winger. He provides very good resources explaining this stuff. I like all of his stuff. Um, but also, who knows, maybe I'll make videos on that one day too. But we have good reason for what books are in the Bible. But I want to address what John is giving us here that actually gives a voice to the issue. Uh, because secondly, right here, John discredits a number of pseudo-gospels that record Jesus as having performed miracles as a baby, child, or young adult, right? Because we do have some of those other gospels that explicitly state that Jesus performed miracles before this time period because he's performing them as a child. Um, but John tells us that no, uh, Jesus did not perform miracles until this moment right here. This is his first miracle. Um, the most popular of these books would be the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which actually records 12 miracles of the young Jesus, right? So at age five, he creates birds from clay. Uh, he also curses two boys. He curses and kills two boys, sorry. <laughs> and then he makes one of the boys' parents blind. Uh, he resurrects the two boys and heals the parents. He resurrects a friend who fell from a roof. He heals a man who accidentally chopped off his foot. At age six, he carries water on his cloak. That's actually a really weird story. I've, I've read it where it's like he like, carries water in his cloak and I was like whoa cool uh, at age eight he produces a hundred measures of grain from one measure of grain uh, he stretches a board to help Joseph build a bed because you know Joseph's a craftsman or carpenter and so he like stretches a board out to help him build the bed he heals his brother James from a snake bite he raises an infant and then at age nine he resurrects a man after a construction accident so just by the time Jesus is age nine, according to the infancy gospel of Thomas, he has performed at least 12 miracles and in some manuscripts, 13. Um, so just from reading these, uh, even before reading the gospel of John, like even before you address the whole thing that we get in John chapter two, you can just read the infancy gospel of Thomas and you could realize that these stories are fabricated because the Jesus of those gospels does not in any way line up with the Jesus of scripture. Mainly because if you'll notice that the second miracle I listed is that he cursed and he killed two of his friends. That doesn't sound like Jesus. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, if you think that sounds like Jesus, you need to read the Bible again. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you can just read the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and you can realize, wow, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Don't listen to what Dan Brown says. It's a fictional book. I know that, yeah, there's a lot to go into there, but... Yeah, it doesn't belong there. But beyond that, it it actually directly contradicts what John says here. John says that Jesus did not perform miracles until this moment right here. Water to wine, first miracle. And according to Luke chapter 3, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. So any miracles prior to that are simply not canon. Uh, and by canon, I mean they do not belong to the true tradition of Jesus. They do not belong to the authoritative position on what happened during the life of Jesus. Um, so if you encounter something like that, just know it doesn't belong in there. We have good reason to believe and trust the 66 books that we have in our biblical canon today. Jesus never performed any self-serving miracles. When he performed them, they always seem to have a purpose, and furthermore, they always seem to teach something about the kingdom of God. But then there's also one more thing that we read in that verse. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. How did Jesus manifest his glory? 
Well, to put it simply, to manifest his glory simply means to demonstrate who he is. Whenever we talk about glorifying God, what we're doing is we're turning the spotlight onto him. When we give God glory, we're not giving him something he didn't already have. We're just turning the spotlight away from ourselves and pointing it to him to show people who truly matters, right? So when Jesus manifests his glory, what he's doing is he is shedding light upon his divine nature. Therefore, witnessing the miracle wasn't enough to witness the glory. What you had to do was witness the glory that allowed the miracle to be produced in the first place. Does that make sense? Right? So whenever Jesus performed the miracle, it's not enough to see the miracle. What you have to do is you have to witness the glory behind the miracle. It wasn't enough to receive the miracle. You had to learn the implications of it. And that's how Jesus manifested his glory. Because the miracle was a really cool thing. But most of the people at the wedding, they did not see the glory that was manifested through it because they didn't even know what happened. They just got to taste the wine and be like, wow, that's really good wine. But what we're going to see is that because of his manifested glory, the disciples believed in him because they got to see that that miracle testified to who he was. Somehow this man had the power over creation. And he's doing things like Moses. He's turning water into wine. Something big is happening here. And I doubt they would have recognized that he is the author of creation himself in the flesh. But right here, they do realize that his glory is being manifested. And because of that, they're believing in him. And thus, we see clearly why John recounts the miracle, for it accomplishes both of his goals. If you remember, the two goals that the Gospel of John has in mind are this. To display the identity of Christ and to show us the nature of true belief. In John chapter 20, verse 31 John says that these things have been written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's trying to teach us who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. And both of those come to a head in this verse. On one side, he manifested his glory. That's the identity of Christ's side, right? This was the first moment when Jesus began to show who he truly was, the Lord over creation. And over the course of the book, he's going to display that more and more and more. But on the second side, his disciples believed in him because of that manifested glory. And so here we get to see what it means to truly believe, right? This was the moment that caused the initial disciples, which probably included John, right? Because it's Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. Uh, this is what caused the initial disciples to place their faith in him and become his disciples. The servants saw the sign, but they didn't see the glory. The disciples saw the sign and the glory behind the sign, and that is where true belief is found. We're going to see this again when we get to things like John chapter 6, where people are going to see a miracle, but they're not going to see the glory manifested in the miracle, and therefore they're not going to place their faith in God, but in the miracle that he provided. They're not going to place their faith in the giver, but in the gift. Not in the creator, but in the creation. And we don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to see what Jesus does, and we want to see what that says about him so that we can place our faith in him. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. John wants us to understand not only what Jesus can do, but what Jesus does and how that explains who he is. Because if we want to truly believe in Jesus, we have to believe in him. There are a lot of different belief systems that believe in Jesus, but they don't have the right view of Jesus. Right? Muslims 
have a perspective of Jesus that is different than Christians. The Latter-day Saints, they have a perspective of Jesus that is different than Christians. Jehovah's Witness, they have a belief in Jesus that is different than Christians. Jews, they have a belief in Jesus that is different than Christians. Buddhists, they all have every single religion. They have an opinion about Jesus that is different. So it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. You have to believe in the correct Jesus. Right? That's why your theology matters. It's what you believe about Jesus. That's what's crucial. The identity and the belief go hand in hand. And that's why these two things fit so closely together in the Gospel of John. And so as we leave today, that's what I want us to remember. We need to not only see the miracle, we need to see the glory behind the miracle. However, despite all this, Jesus still has not gone public with his ministry. That's for next week. Dear Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to gather here again once today. Thank you for allowing us to go through your word. And thank you for your word that came into the world to make you known. I pray that if there's anybody listening to this who does not know you, that they will give their hearts to you right here and right now. And that you will enter into them and you will transform them from the inside out so that the old will be gone away and they will become a new creation, God. And I pray that for each of those who do know you, you will still do the same in us, that you will continually begin to circumcise our hearts and tear away all the terrible things within us so that we can live more and more for your glory each and every day. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you are saving the best for last. Thank you for this first sign that you demonstrated at Cana and Galilee. As we depart from here, let us not forget about it, but let us go out and tell the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.